on today's episode. I'm not trying to say getting rid of carbon is going to be easy as getting rid of sulfur was, but the political frameworks that were put in place were very instructive. And once we got a functioning sulfur market, then all that venture capitalists could go to work. And I'm sure there was a guy sitting around just like me in 1960 going, solving acid rain is going to cost trillions of dollars. Guess what? Once you had that functioning sulfur market and these brilliant engineers went to work, they solved the problem. They weren't oil companies. They weren't car companies. They weren't utilities. They weren't any of the usual suspects. But you had to incentivize them and let them work their magic. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott Gould. Today, I'm delighted to have with me Jeff Curry. Jeff is the Global Head of Commodity Research at Goldman Sachs. He's been doing that for an impressively long time, basically since oil was first discovered. He is one of the few genuine gurus in the industry, and I'm delighted to have him on the show. Jeff, welcome. Great. Thank you, Hugo. And it's, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's great to see you again. Yes, yes, yes. It really is it's a treat. You've been writing a lot saying it's the revenge of the old economy. What do you mean? Why do these cycles keep repeating? And then let's talk after that about how to quantify that. Well, let's go back to the February 2002 when the dot-com bubble was bursting. That's when we coined the term the revenge of the old economy. And what it was meant to capture was the fact over the previous decade, the dot-com boom has stole so much capital from the old economy, it had prevented it to be able to grow the supply base. And at the time, we thought it was something totally new. Then we saw it again resurface in the 2010s. Then the new economy, instead of being the dot-com boom, was the fang boom. But it was doing the same thing. It was siphoning returns or siphoning capital away from the old economy, choking off the investment that it needed to grow the supply base. By the way, I want to be perfectly clear here. Investors made the right decision to be buying Netflix over Exxon over the previous decade because the returns in Microsoft, the returns in Netflix, and the rest of them were far superior. But ultimately, that underinvestment choked off the supply base that now the returns from being in the old economy are substantially greater. I like to point out last quarter, Exxon printed $20 billion of free cash flow versus Microsoft at 17. So now Exxon's printing bigger free cash flow numbers. However, the valuation of Microsoft is still four times that of Exxon. So we're just beginning this rotation of the way from the new economy and towards the old economy. Another way to say it is the old economy is now taking its revenge. But before I, you asked another point that these are broader cycles, I'm beginning to realize the revenge of the old economy is probably the wrong term for this. What really, what it really is, is the inflation duration trade-off, or it's an inflation duration cycle. To understand what that is. Let's go back to 1960. And 
We look at 1960, you had excess commodity supply coming off all of the investment in the post-war era. This led to low and stable inflation, actually very similar to the 2010s. The low and stable inflation led to very low interest rates, again, very similar to 2010s. What do investors want in that environment? They want duration. Duration in the 1960s was the nifty 50. What was it? It was brand names, things like Coca-Cola and Gillette. This did the exact same thing it did over the last decade. It choked off capital to the Exxons of the world. In fact, make a chart of Coca-Cola in Exxon. You can see these cycles clearly over this time period. Let's go to the 1990s. Exact same setup. Excess commodity supply coming off of the boom in the 80s, and you had the collapse of the Soviet Union, led to low and stable inflation, low interest rates. Remember, you had Greenspan talking about irrational exuberance. Investors chased the dot-com, which was duration then. And then similarly, I'm not going to go over the story. We all know the 2010s, exact same setup. So are these environments inherently inflationary? The answer is no. But what occurred in 1968? LBJ's Great Society. What occurred in 2002? China's admission to the WTO. What occurred in March of 2020? COVID stimulus. By the way, all three of those two commodity demand, very similar in magnitude. But what they did is they represented that transition point where you began to price higher inflation and higher interest rates. And what do investors then do? Then they do they chase shorter duration. The, the duration comes in. And so here's the final point to this. What do the 70s have in common with the 2000s and likely to have in common over the next decade? Huge CapEx booms. And ultimately, and what people, I think, miss is you need the higher rates to actually create those CapEx investment booms. They don't kill it off. They actually create it. Why? They discourage the duration trade. Means where do you put your money? Into today. Yeah, which is a little bit counterintuitive, but actually making capital a bit more expensive encourages more spending. Have you had a go? So this is, we follow the money, you get capital cycles, capital goes over here, then it stops, industries over here, then it goes back the other way. So this is a supply side driven phenomenon, plus you've created a ton of money. Have you attempted to try and quantify the level of underinvestment? Because that's not an easy calculation. I think trying to be precise is ridiculous, but to try and quantify it plus time, time to rectify. Because the I think the second part of my question is maybe even more important than the first, which is the time to make the necessary investment has other considerations, such as how do I model the payback period? If we're going to hit our emissions targets, can I really, how long is this project going to exist for? And then secondary, which I think we should get onto, is attitudes, beliefs, societal beliefs, which you could also describe as ESG. So actually, hold on, my return on investment plus the risk of making the investment is a different equation, I think, from previous capital start supply shocks, because my period for payback is much more uncertain. Yeah. And by the way, I've, I don't think initially, if you'd have asked me this exact question six months ago, I would have separated the ESG story from the duration story. What I'm beginning to realize ESG and green, you know, take green tech or green hydrogen, all of that's duration. 
Is it any different than crypto, big tech, or anything that has been hit really hard? In fact, you look at the sell-off in green tech, it's very similar to what the rest of the tech sectors look like. To answer your, your, your question is if you have to rely on that duration investment, it's going to be really difficult to stimulate that investment because you got a mismatch in the duration here with that green tech. I'm going to take a step back to answer that question in a different way. We have a lot of technology available today that could reduce emissions. We're not reducing emissions. I like to point this out is that in a 0% interest rate environment, being green has no cost. It's just part of that duration play, whether if it's net zero, 2050 or whatever it might be, these lofty ideals, they make a lot of sense in a low interest rate environment. I just want to lump them into duration. And as in what is happening right now, because of the underinvestment in oil and gas, which are relatively clean burning fuels, what is the world doing, particularly the low-income countries and low-income groups within places like Europe and the U.S.? What they're doing is they're substituting into the lowest-cost, fastest-cycle energy source, which happens to be wood and coal, which emit wood emits five times coal, and coal emits two times gas. So we're making emissions worse today. Now, I want to bring this back to duration into answering your question is – Instead of being focused on net zero 2050, we need to be focused on today. And higher interest rates are going to force that duration up in a much more closer manner. And we use the technologies that are available today, employ them, get emissions down through 2023. I, I don't know if we're going to get there. I doubt it. But let's say we do focus on getting them down in 2023. Higher interest rates and shorter duration means Let's get them down and let's get to the end of 2023, get them down. Let's focus on 2024. We'll probably talk about policy later on in this, this podcast. So I'll wait to address that. But that's the way I'm thinking about, you know, the answer to your question, because what you're asking is that that is, is this thing any different than in the past? I don't think so. And I think that that focus on green tech and everything like that is really caught up in this whole idea duration. On your question of capital misallocation. I think if you think about the capital misallocation being driven by ESG or low interest rates, I think the capital misallocation driven by low interest rates is far larger than the ESG. In fact, I don't know if we know if ESG is binding or not. Investors don't like this space because of a history of bad returns. They don't like it because of the high volatility and the focus on duration over the previous decade it made this sector really uninvestable. So as a result, do we know that the lack of investment is due to ESG or to these other factors? Because once we see the rates of return of the sector on a three-year moving average start to get above the NASDAQ and the, the new economy, if we don't see the capital flowing then, we'll argue, hey, maybe it is ESG, but I, my bet, capital will flow. They will chase these returns. But I think the key point is, why is the capital misallocation so incredibly large this time around? I think it's one, the losses that were generated by these sectors in the 2010s make the 1990s look like a walk in the park. You know, I like to point out in the 1990s, US EMPs destroyed 27 cents on every dollar. In the 2010s, they destroyed 54 cents on every dollar. 
Is it ESG that's causing people not like the space or is it that fact? The other point I like to emphasize too is we'd never seen 0% interest rates. And even the French philosophers go, hey, you're going to get a capital misallocation at 0% interest rates. And they figured that out 300 years ago. So anyway, to give you our unprecise number, you know, I like to use Michele's numbers, Michele Delavigna. He's our carbonomic specialist. He basically makes the point that capital misallocation within, you know, your, you know, your, your core non-OPEC or the ones that produce of the traded companies is in that 300 to 500 billion range. So we're talking very large sums of capital misallocation. You spread it across the rest of all the other sectors, we're talking trillions of dollars. If energy prices stay where they are or indeed go higher, I would have thought the the marginal return on the marginal project is getting pretty attractive. Do you think there is going to be a reticence on the part of public companies to make that investment for some of the things we've discussed? And actually, should they therefore even be public companies? Will it become so attractively profitable on near-term yield to take these things private? The share counts speak for themselves. Some of these companies, their share counts are dropping 3% every quarter. And the reason why it's they can get a higher return on their capital buying their shares back than putting a drill bit in the ground because the valuations are so low relative to their cash flow. Similarly, you know, you can go out and if you're a US oil producer, you can buy European oil assets off of the European companies. Because I will, when I say that impacted by ESG, there is a substantial evidence that the European companies are being impacted by this. I, I don't think the US ones are. But again, if you're a US company, it's probably cheaper to buy European assets than it is to put a drill bit in the ground. Also, cost inflation has been tremendous. So here's a stat. The unemployment rate in the U.S. oil sector is not 0.2. I don't think I've ever heard of such a number, but it indicates that the inflationary pressures in these spaces are, are, are substantial. And with oil's recent pullback, and we can talk about what has driven that as well, you're now at a level where the economics just don't make that much sense in terms of putting capital to work today. So we're just not seeing it. And you know that's going to have profound impacts when we look further down the road. Yeah, I mean, a reluctance to invest just puts off the evil hour and leads to a bigger crescendo at the top, I, I would have thought. Certainly, I remember back in the days of 2007-8 when I was an airline analyst and, and airlines were on hedge were suddenly paying prices they'd never seen or even thought possible for kerosene. So it's a pretty fascinating question. So when would be, to, to round all that up, when do you think there will be a sufficient supply-side response to keep energy prices within a range and i guess that's probably energy costs relative to gdp or something when do you see a more steady equilibrium how slow do you think the supply response is going to be well i think your point before about esg and the need to rebuild a replace the old carbon economy with a old green economy because it's still old economy it just got to be green it's going to make this the largest CapEx initiative the world's ever seen. So it clearly is going to make it far more difficult. But let me give you the answer of what we learned from the 70s and the 2000s. And I picked this up from asset allocators, and you can see it in the data. The first three years of one of these commodity super cycles is required to create a track record to convince investors it's investable. Because remember, the 90s, 
and the 2010s have created the image that this this sector is uninvestable. By the way, models too. I wasn't around in the 60s to attest to what the returns were back then, but my guess is they must have been pretty bad as well. Then years four through six, you see capital rotate into the sector. So we'll see if we get the rotation like we did in 05. By the way, I'm confident that when these asset alligators tell me this, it's true because 02, the super cycle began with China's admission to the WTO just like this one began with the COVID stimulus. And it was in 05 that we saw the capital rotation. And by the way, the rotation just came out of the new economy. It's not like you bring in new capital. Everybody thinks you got to bring in new capital. No, you take it out of the old economy. So that's what happened in 2005, or call year four of the super cycle. What follows? Now they have all this capital, they try to spend it, and they spend it against this not 0.2 unemployment rate. What's going to happen to the prices of everything? They're going to go up. They experience substantial cost inflation. This drives commodity. In the case of the 2000s, it took oil from 50 all the way up to 100. I have no idea what it's going to do this time around, but I'm pretty sure you're going to see it. And this time, it's going to be competing with the green capex, yeah. which will be competing for resources as well. I want to talk about that, what it takes to build a new green energy system. And, and obviously it takes a loss is the short answer. But I guess it's sort of skills, capital, materials, laws, regulations. What would worry you or concern you the most? What, what is in shortage supply? What are the impediments that impinge upon that? Metals are going to be the biggest bottleneck. Now, copper, we're out of copper right now. Inventory is extraordinarily low. The big copper supply increase that everybody had expected for 2023 has been ratcheted down from 8% growth down to around 4 to 4.5% growth in supply. I mean, after that, there's really nothing behind it at a time when demand is going to explode from the, all of this green capex you're referring to. And we haven't even gotten into the issues around rare earth metals, as well as aluminium. Remember, aluminium is basically solid energy. And given the energy crisis going on, it's hard to come by. So you have all of that demand that's going to act like a break on that investment. And let me take a step back and talk about this all, all of this green investment and the approach that, that that we're taking. And I want to start with the observation. What is food? Food is a carbohydrate. What is oil? Oil is a hydrocarbon. The only thing separating the two is an oxygen. What do they all have in common? They're, they're the, it's organic chemistry. It's the carbon-hydrogen bond. And when we think of how you create the fossil fuels, it's basically the plants, all of the carbohydrates, wood's a carbohydrate, as they sit there and rot and go down to the bottom of the surface over thousands and thousands of years, that oxygen disappears. Oh, other point too, you want to fly to Mars? You got to have one fuel on board that feeds the human and goes into the rocket booster. So we got to get the technology to move that oxygen in and out of the food supply and in the fuel supply to be able to bring one fuel on board if we want to fly to Mars. But you get the point here. Now, why am I bringing this up in the context of the green investment? Is the carbon-hydrogen bond is what makes Earth 
earth and actually sustains our life. So it's a really critical component of the planet earth. In fact, that's what makes earth different from all of the other, other planets. And when we think about the following observation, if you're driving a car today, an internal combustion engine car, you have the 80 kilo person on board and you have the 20 liters of, of petrol on board. Not a whole lot of weight involved with those two things. Now think about a Tesla. Depending on the quality of Tesla you have and the speed, the battery weight of this thing is somewhere anywhere from 1,500 pounds to 3,000 pounds. It's enormous. Why is it on there? Why is it all that weight and all these green metals that we're talking about right now? Because you're using inorganic energy to replicate organic energy. You're replicating that thousand years of that deterioration of that oxygen off of that uh, that carbohydrate. And then you have to go, okay, we've got thousands of pounds of metals on board this car versus the 80 kilo guys or the 20 liters. Now let's start to scale up from 10 million cars on the road that are currently EVs to the 1.3 billion internal combustion engines. You get my point here? It's going to put enormous amount of stress on the availability of green metals and other types of natural resources. So that's, I think, one of the really big keys we need to be thinking about in the ability to generate this green revolution. So I, I want to end up, finish on a more optimistic note, but we're not there yet. Because what I really want to end up is, do we get to energy abundance and, and what happens then? But before we get there, I want to talk a bit about geopolitics. And I'm I'm always interested in, in power and where is power and how does it move around the world? So energy moves around the world and, and where it's going to and from creates power. It creates geopolitical capital. So are we moving to a world where power is going to reflect different energy flows and perhaps a sort of lazy way of characterizing that is, this, is, is the dollar? Why should China buying materials energy from Russia or Australia? Why should they use dollars? So I'm, I'm interested in that question around, I guess, the supremacy of the dollar. But really, I'm interested in with some countries having access to materials that weren't so relevant in the past, but are becoming more relevant now. Does that see a shift in power? Big picture questions, but I know you've thought about them. Absolutely, yes. And when we think about the world, who has access to it? So there's a point people like to make that, oh, China has all of the world's rare earth metals. By the way, it has all the production of them right now in the supply chains, but guess where all the reserves sit? Sierra Nevada's in the United States and the Andes in Latin America. It sits in that whole range of mountains, basically from California all the way down to Argentina. The Western Hemisphere has everything the world needs. It has all the oil, has all the gas, it has all the metals, all the chemicals, all the fertilizers, all the food baskets. It has everything the world needs, which then begs the question, I like to say, what makes this commodity super cycle really different from the one we saw in the 2000s is just how strong the dollar is. And I have to ask myself, if America has everything the world needs, how does the dollar ever get out of the way of itself? And I really struggle with that view, particularly for food and metals. So when we think about where does the power go, by the way, Brazilian economy is doing pretty well right now. They actually tame their inflation far more quickly than, than the rest of the world. 
And let's not forget, they have all the same kind of stuff. They got all the food, they got the metals, they got all of, in fact, agriculture yields in Brazil and Argentina are the best in the world. You know, that's the best, most fertile land on the planet Earth. So when we think about the other place in the world that has a lot of the resources that the world needs, and particularly solar and wind, is the Middle East. In fact, I like to point out they're the only true Switzerland left in the world. You look at Switzerland, it's lost its secrecy, banking secrecy capability. It voted, obviously, in the UN against Russia, as did Singapore. So if you really think about where is neutrality and you know Dubai, in fact, I'd argue Dubai is going to attract a lot of the world's capital. And it already is not only the capital, but the human resources, particularly out of places like, like Russia more recently. So the other place outside of the world, basically, it's the Americas and the Middle East that are going to be the ones that really benefit in this environment we're going into. One last point on, on this point about where are the resources. If we know we need to decarbonize and we know that you don't want to have, invest in long cycle oil productions like these deep water projects off the coast of West Africa, and you want short cycle oil, they only exist in three places, US shale, the Arab Gulf, and Russia. Russia is out. It just leaves you two options, US shale, and in the in the Middle East. And by the way, in terms of uh, thinking about the Middle East, their solar and wind capabilities are absolutely massive. They can create things like blue hydrogen, green hydrogen out of the natural gas. They can put industrial activities on top of those gas fields and be able to produce the goods without emitting anything. Their position is very strong. The problem is they don't have the same food supplies that the Americas and Brazil have. But anyway, I think you get the point. The dominance is North America, Latin America, and the Middle East going forward because they essentially have everything that the world needs. Now, the bottom line is Europe, India, China, and Northeast Asia, they, they just, they're not endowed with the type of commodities that the world's going to need going forward. It looks like Europe has shifted from energy dependency on Russia to energy dependency on the US. Maybe that's what yeah, the US wants. Here, on that point, I like to make the following observation. What was LNG invented for? It was invented to deal with the London fog problem in the 1950s. It was a quick, very expensive source of gas for power generation to reduce the dependency on coal and get rid of the smog problem. It's not a fuel that you run your industrial economy off of. It's too expensive. Why is it too expensive? Just think about what you're doing. You're taking natural gas somewhere in the world, you're liquefying it, putting it on a $300 million ship that is a floating thermos that is frozen, and you put it in there. And then you have to sail it off to wherever you're putting and then regasify it, put it in a pipeline and send it to the industrial activities. It's too expensive to do. I like to point out, ship the BMWs, don't ship the LNG or ship the gas. So move the BMW plant on top of the gas field and ship the BMWs. It makes much more economic sense, which then begs the question, what is Germany going to do? Do they just move all their industrial activity to the rest of the world, or do they realign themselves with Russia? So the bottom line is they may talk a tough game right now, but in terms of looking at the long-term viability of German manufacturing, more likely than not, they will likely come to an agreement because pipe gas 
is just far more economical, environmentally friendly than really any other types of energy sources available to them. I guess Japan's interesting in this context and that Japan has shifted a lot of its manufacturing overseas. So it still owns it still owns the revenues, but it's shifted its production to a cheaper labor cost and more abundant labor, but also energy access as well. So I think I guess that gets you back to the deindustrialization of, of Europe argument. You mentioned Russia and Amkin. Again, this is just ignorance for me. I want to understand this sort of simplistic idea that I think has issues with it, that Russia can just shift its energy east. It's not that easy. It takes a long time to build pipes. If you're going to pipe a lot of gas into China, that takes time. And secondarily, do you agree with the argument that you there are skills that Russia still lacks, that some of the US companies that have been in Russia have a greater skill set to enable extraction of energy from difficult places? Does that add up? So how does is the net result that just less energy flows from Russia and some of its wells eventually just get closed and don't get reopened? Or given time, the energy will still flow, but just flow in a different direction? To you know, the answer to the first question about investment, that technology that you're referring to, the foreign technology and the foreign capital was critical to the growth of the Russian energy sector. I'm not going to say it's going to impact anything in the very near term. You know, they're still going to be able to extract it. But when we think about the longer term prognosis for the Russian energy sector, it becomes a significant headwind on supply growth. Even the energy minister of Russia says it's going to create a problem in, in several years. But I think going to this broader point about, oh, redirecting everything to China. Do you think the Chinese want to be 100% dependent upon Russia after everything they've just seen with Germany, highly unlikely. So I think, you know, making this bet that you're going to rotate everything east overnight, there's not the appetite from the consumers as well. I mean, I think one of the key themes to our commodity outlook on the super cycle is this whole idea of diversification of supply sources, everything around the world that basically diversifies your risk from these kinds of problems. So, and I think your point too, but doing that redirection is very expensive. We're already seeing how expensive it is in oil. We have an enormous amount of oil floating at sea right now. We ran out of tankers just because steaming a tanker from the Baltics down to Rotterdam doesn't take that long, you know, a week or so. Steaming a tanker round through Suez to China takes four weeks. And the amount of tankers you're tying up and oil sitting at sea is starting to put a lot of upward pressure on tanker margins, which tells you just how difficult these types of redirections really truly are when you try to do them on a, on a longer term basis, particularly when the fact that you already had Iran do a lot of this more recently, you tied up the resources from that perspective. So yeah, I think you know, your point is spot on that such redirection is not only really difficult to do and time consuming to do, but it's likely to be extremely expensive. We talked a little bit about where the resources are. And we talked a bit about what might be in short supply, but I, I, I guess I'm interested again in where might production go? So yes, it goes where labor's cheap. Yes, it goes where energy's cheap, but climate also plays a role in that. How do you think about the role of climate change on the location of production and what that means for commodity flows. If we all did renewables, which part of the reason why Germany is so advocating renewables, it makes the entire world deglobalized. Chemical energy 
You can put it on ships and move it around the world. It connects the world. Electrons can't go very far. They're too hard to ship, which makes everything deglobalized and local, which means you're no longer dependent upon outside resource for anything but the metals and the basic goods that go into those renewable production. By the way, when we talk about environmental policy, I'll, I'll give you, you know, view. I don't think it's a done deal. We're going that direction yet. But when we think about in that environment, the world becomes completely deglobalized. And by the way, when we think about the three big themes that drive our commodity outlook, we call it revving commodity demand, redistribution policies, and they call that the war on income inequality. The E from REV, R-E-V, the E stands for environmental policies, called out the war on climate change. And the V, versatility in supply chains, which is what we just talked about, called out the war on free trade, so deglobalization. So war on climate change, which is the R, redistributional policies. War on income inequality, which is the redistributional policies, and that's your R. The E is the war on climate change, which is the environmental policies, the E, and then the V is versatility in supply chains. That's your deglobalization. Now, what I want to point out, they're all three of the exact same thing. Because if you decarbonize with renewables, you're deglobalized. And when we think about why do we like all that green capex? Because it solves income inequality, because who's going to get the jobs? It's going to be the lower income groups. And so when we think, you know, and the protectionist for the lower income groups forces deglobalization. And so in one way, all three of this REV, revving of commodity demand, are all essentially kind of one and the same under this idea of renewables. Are renewables the going to be the definite answer here? I don't know. And I have a lot of questions around around renewables. But, you know, there, there is the potential the, you know, let's say a climate change technology came into place and we just end up with chemical energy being the dominant. But going to 100% electrons, we still can't do it technologically. Can we talk about moonshots? Let's be a little more optimistic. Depends if you're in a lot of commodities, whether you're optimistic or pessimistic. But if you're on the wrong side of rising commodity prices, it's pessimistic. But moonshots, things like nuclear fission, do you get excited about that? Do you think in our lifetimes this can be a, a genuine thing or a genuine source of? of energy and the energy equation? I think we need a shift in policy around climate change to create carbon markets and carbon prices to get a moon, a real moonshot. You need the venture capitalists to uh, just start throwing money at all these different technologies, and one of these moonshots will probably pay off. In the current environment, we're not incentivizing that kind of investment. And I like to point out, you know, we go back to the war on acid rain in the 1960s. By the way, it's in our DNA as human beings. We know how to solve cross-border, international, environmental problems. We did solve acid rain in the 60s and in, in, in the 70s. But we did it by creating rules and regulations in fines around not meeting those targets. I always like to ask this question. How much did Volkswagen pay for violating the catalytic converter rules, which came out of that war on acid rain? The answer is $20 billion. But once you get those rules and regulations, and by the way, I like to point this out, would anybody be turning on coal plants in Germany this last year if they're going to get fined $20 billion? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. That's how you're going to clean up the world. You got to get to that point. 
where people do not have the option to, to be able to do this. But I think the key point why I bring up the war on acid rain is what we got out of it were functioning sulfur markets. By the way, for those who don't know what acid rain was, acid rain was, it was due to the aerosols and the sulfur in the fuels that went up and created the smog. By the way, that smog cooled the planet because it reflected the sun back into, into the atmosphere. So getting rid of all that, we could breathe and see again, and it got rid of, of acid rain, but it also warmed the planet. But I think the key point here is, and I, by the way, for those listeners, I'm not trying to say getting rid of carbon is going to be easy as getting rid of, of sulfur was, but the political frameworks that were put in place were very instructive. And once we got a functioning sulfur market, then all that venture capitalists could go to work. And I'm sure there was a guy sitting around just like me in 1960 going, solving acid rain is going to cost trillions of dollars investment the size of China over the next two decades. Guess what? Once you had that functioning sulfur market and these brilliant engineers went to work, they solved the problem. Ironically, they were all in Germany in there. It wasn't in the U.S. or any place like that. It was the engineers there. It was BSF. And Englehart then ended up solving it. They weren't oil companies. They weren't car companies. They weren't utilities. They weren't any of the usual suspects. They were big engineers. But you had to incentivize them and let them work their magic. And by the way, solving acid rain cost a fraction of what, what anybody ever thought it would. Because once you debottleneck the flow of capital going to the engineers, you came up with your one of your moonshot solutions. You know, I like to, you know, you talk to people that are in the PGM markets, they go, who would have thunk in 1970 that platinum and palladium would have solved, you know, your acid rain problems or the aerosol problems? They did. Nobody would have thought. It's kind of like your, your question about these moonshots. That's the kind of moonshot we're talking about. But we don't have the political arrangements put in place to get a carbon price to be able to harness that kind of ingenuity and investment that could come in and ultimately create one of the solutions. By the way, on that note, if somebody creates a carbon capture technology that's scalable, everything else is, is moot. It's a winner take all, which there's a lot of risk to any of these types of, of investments that are there. And by the way, why am I not a big fan of renewables? I do want to go, go over that so people understand that is when we think about waste, energy waste, it's directly proportional to energy density, meaning you take wood, it creates far more waste than, let's say, nuclear. Nuclear is the most dense of all energy sources. Think about it. Nuclear power plants, waste is the size of your fist. You bury it in a safe place, you, that's your waste. You think about wood, it's got you know carbon emissions, ashes, it's it's very it's pretty you know, like coal. Both of them are pretty nasty. Let's think about the waste associated with renewables. It's going the wrong direction. Renewables is the least energy. We're going backwards from the wood age because think about how much damage you're doing to the environment with all the windmills, all the farms. And what do you do with all of the waste once you're done? And when you think about nuclear, which I think is your question about these moonshot technologies, is you want to get the smallest energy density you possibly can to really begin to reduce re reduce that waste. And the other problem with renewables, we still don't know about how to deal with the storage. Because to go back to your question, who has the power and the flows and everything like that, is that 
because you can't move electrons around the world and they go basically you got to get away from the entire concept of storage and have everything done directly you start to run into problems with the intermittency issues that are associated with with renewables because we still can't overcome that you know the question is will technology get there but i think the key point there with thinking about nuclear and these very energy dense type of technologies you don't have those kind of problems before we can have these discussions in earnest we need to see a change in policy well, one of my favorite quotes of yours is, if you give the engineers long enough, they solve it. If you give the politicians long enough, they screw it up. And I think that's what you're, what you're saying. So I guess where we started was the revenge of the old economy, capital cycles. We've seen this movie before. So I guess my final question to you, trying to be upbeat and maybe too utopian, and you've, you've kind of half answered it already, but when do we stop seeing these cycles because energy has become abundant, that energy costs as a percentage of GDP become de minimis and just not just not relevant and how to run a modern economy? Or is that just way too Star Trek? That's not going to happen. I think that's way too Star Trek. I think these cycles will continue. I do believe it'll be in decreasing. You know, you just look at over time, energy and food, the richer societies become and the more technological evolved, the energy and food will small and it will converge way off. But here's the reason why it can never completely go away. And we're experiencing that in Europe right now, even though it may end up being a small point of it, it still controls the ability for the, the system to grow. So on a percentage basis to GDP, it's super small. But in terms of a physical capability for GDP to grow, it's super large. It kind of goes into financial shares versus physical shares. And the physical component will always be there, which underscores the importance of reliability. In fact, when we think about the issues around, around your energy sources and your choices, clearly reliability and affordability are way up there as well as emissions. And the one that seems to be forgotten out of the three, you got reliability and affordability as being an important factor. You have low carbon emissions here, but low pollution. By the way, did you know EVs are recreating the aerosol problem? We're going backwards on solving acid rain with the hybrid EVs. Because the hybrid EVs, when they burn, they'll, they'll release NOx and SOx because they, the battery keeps the temperatures too low. And so we need to look at that balance between all three of them when we start to, to think about the, you know, these longer-term questions. I tried to be optimistic, Jeff, but you talked me down. I want to say thank you very much for coming on the show. It's great to see you again. It's been too long. But that was, I think, a very productive romp through your encyclopedic knowledge of the past, the present, and the future with regards to commodities. So thank you very much. I want to say that there is one optimistic point in this is that the long run return on this, we will solve the problem. I, I you know, your point about don't bet against an engineer and give them enough time and money that they'll solve the problem. We will solve climate change. We will solve these problems. You know, and I think there's going to be good returns for investing in the commodity space. So there's your optimistic answer near term. Look to commodities for good returns. And hey, believe in the engineer. They will solve these problems on a longer term basis. That's a much better note to finish on. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Spotify. And if you'd like, please leave us a review. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at active.williamblair.com and follow us on Instagram at williamblairim.
This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.